Does anybody here like or enjoy watching the news? I mean, a lot of us do it, or we read the news. I mean, one of, that's one of the thing, first things I do in the morning after I get up and I'm, you know, woken up, I check my phone and I'm looking down my news feed to kind of see what's going on in the world. We, a lot of us do it, but it's not necessarily an enjoyable experience because the news, well, to put it frankly, usually the news is terrible, right? Usually we hear about the bad things. Now, occasionally, news, uh, news channels have these nice special interest stories that are meant to be uplifting, and you're, they're usually super cheesy. But those things are few and far between when it comes to the scope of the news that we read, right? You can, even now, I mean, don't do it, please, right now. You could check now on your phone, and most of the top news feeds are going to be bad things, Right? It's bad news. We constantly hear stories of devastation, right? Let's see if these images are going to come up. We constantly see uh, stories about devastation. We see stories of abuse and, and tragedy all the time. We see stories that highlight individual and in systemic injustices. We see stories of poverty, people that are suffering from marginalizations around the world, people living in garbage villages. We see stories like this. We hear stories of war and death, murder and abuse and rape. And these things are in our news all the time. We live in a messed up world. We live in a very messy world. And perhaps today, because the accessibility of information is so easy through social media and the kinds of things that we have access to now, we are inundated by this reality. It is inescapable. But we are not the first generation of people, nor will we be the last that looks at their world and wonders, God, come on. Where are you? What are you doing? Why don't you fix this already? In fact, this is how things were, that sense of what the feeling was in Jerusalem and in Judea in those days when Jesus was born. Around the time of Jesus' birth, we come to a point in the story of Israel, the story of the Jewish people, where things were absolutely a mess. Hundreds of years ago, people, from, from their perspective, hundreds of years ago, their people were sent off into exile. They, their homes were destroyed. Their city, their capital city was pillaged. The walls were broken down. They lived subservient to other nations for a time. And then there was a sign of hope, at least what they thought was a sign of hope, under King Cyrus and other, other uh, leaders in Babylon and Persia, people started to go back to Jerusalem. The exiles started to return. They were given the opportunity to try to rebuild and rebuild. And sure, they did. We have that recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they rebuilt but you know what? 
Not long after, in comes Alexander the Great. And then after Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire folds, what takes its place? The Roman Empire. So for a whole series with a brief break in the middle, the Jewish people were a conquered, oppressed people looking for some sort of redemption, looking for some sign of hope that someday God would come back. And to make it all worse, God had gone silent for about 400 years. They had been used to, at least every once in a while, some crazy, wild-haired prophet going in there and telling them they needed to repent and that God still is there and that if they turn to him, God will show them favor. They were hearing that for centuries. And then after Malachi... Nothing. God, where are you? This world is terrible. Our people are oppressed. God, your people are oppressed. God, why don't you fix it? Why don't you do anything? So in those days, revolution was in the air, right? We hear of the zealots, the people who were trying to create political upheaval in Jerusalem. Revolution was there, but the the authorities kept on suppressing them. The religious rulers were full of themselves. Legal rulers were playing the political game to pacify the higher-ups so that they themselves would be taken care of, not necessarily all the people. Poverty was significant and rampant. Prejudice and injustice abounded in those days. Strife between different types of people existed. And kings, local kings, were cruel and unjust. And again, to top it all off, God was silent. To those who remained devout in those days, they must have wondered. It must have been difficult to hold on to that sense of hope. God, what are you doing? There was one devout man, a man by the name of Zechariah. He was married to a woman named Elizabeth. And they were already a little bit more advanced in age. But something happened, a spark, as if a light was shining in the darkness. First, a sense of hope, a woman in her old age for the first time becoming pregnant and successfully pregnant. I wonder about this sometimes. For Elizabeth, who some of you may know becomes the mother of a man they named, a child they named John, who becomes John the Baptist. Elizabeth was pregnant in her older age. What kind of experience was this for her and for her husband, Zechariah? By all accounts, they had no children, which meant in those days she probably tried. They probably tried for years and decades to get pregnant, and it just wasn't happening. I imagine that there were miscarriages, multiple along the way, heartache and pain. It makes me think of a friend of mine who, for years, he and his wife had wanted to have children. And from the time that they were married, they were trying to have children, but it just never seemed to happen. For a while, she just couldn't get pregnant. And then she would have a miscarriage, and then have another miscarriage, 
and have another miscarriage. Those of you who have gone through that know what that pain is like. I imagine Elizabeth as that kind of woman who has experienced that kind of pain. So my friends, about a, about a few years ago, three years ago, she got pregnant again. And they had anticipated, they weren't going to tell anybody because they, you know, they were worried that you know, they wouldn't keep, the baby wouldn't survive. And they pressed on. And then at about nine weeks, the baby's heart stopped. It was hard. It was her fourth miscarriage. The pain, the emotional and physical pain was devastating for her and for her husband. And as a friend, it was difficult to watch. And I imagine this is what it would have been like to watch Zechariah and Elizabeth. Painful. A year and a half ago, we heard the news our friend became pregnant again. They're not Christians, but they welcomed me praying for them and praying for their unborn child. We waited in cautious anticipation. The first six weeks went by. Then came seven, and then eight, and then nine, and then ten. At ten, it had been her longest pregnancy and then 11, and then finally 12, one of those markers that many doctors say the chance of miscarriage drops significantly. And then at 13, you could see the hope in their faces. Something was happening, a spark of life. They had gone through so much hardship and challenge, and finally hope was arriving. And 14 weeks, the baby was healthy and growing, and then seven months ago, their son was born, a beautiful baby boy. The miracle of life is amazing. In the life of my friends and in the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah, it is the promise of life and a source of hope. And what's more, it was not just Elizabeth who had gotten pregnant. Elizabeth's cousin, a young woman, Mary had also become pregnant. And to both of these women, angels had appeared. God was suddenly starting to show up. Something was happening. The spark of light was blooming in them, and the, the feeling of hope and anticipation was burning. God was up to something. After 400 years of being quiet, angels have arrived. Something's about to change. God was saying, the promise that I have made to you to bring salvation to you, to save you as a people, it is happening now. Listen to the song of Zechariah, the hymn of praise that he launches into. We find this in Luke chapter 1. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, as he said through his prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors, 
to remember his holy covenant, a covenant that some people may have wondered if God abandoned and forgotten by now. To remember his holy covenant, to the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hands of our enemy and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It is not difficult for us to see that Zechariah is carrying in himself and in his praise years of frustration. He is carrying for in his words of praise the frustrations of a people for hundreds of years. There is a distinctly political even sense of kingship, wanting things to change so that they can serve in the temple freely without extra taxation and all the other oppression that is opposed upon them by the Roman government. And here in that space, he remembers that God had promised to rescue his people, and now it is happening. This is critically important for us today, because all around the world, we see it in the news. Poor, continually being marginalized and being taken advantage of. Slavery is more rampant today than in any other point in human history. We don't see it, but it's happening. Estimates are staggering. If you want to just go on Google, you can look up the estimates of people enslaved in the United States. It is staggering. In many parts of the world, even in our nation, injustices persist. Justice is not always served. People get away with corruption and violence. And if you look at it from a strictly human perspective, you really have to wonder, how in the world will this ever get any better? Every once in a while, we hit a phase in human history where we think like, oh, things are looking better. But then we're reminded that they're not. Because they're not. Human sin always gets in the way. Changes in presidents don't impact the direction and the trajectory of humanity. Changes in political parties and power do not do that. Changes in global power and shifts do not do that. But there is hope. We actively wait, doing what is right, pointing to hope, because we long for the day that Jesus returns and makes all things right as he had promised in Scripture. We see that promise in this promise of a baby, child, in Jesus, that God came to us to be with us. You know, in Christmas time, if you've been around church a lot, you hear this word Emmanuel. We sang about it, God with us. What does that mean? It means that in this moment, at least for Zechariah, God arrived and gave hope. It is a time of hope. Christ comes and gives hope. Hope. Hope is found, Zechariah declares, in a God who came to save, not sending his own representative to God's people, but God, God's self coming in and breaking into a messy world and say, hey, there is hope. Now, some of us just need to be reminded of this. Some of us need to learn how to pray for hope. 
Some of us need to be reminded to look at our news and to look at it from a kingdom perspective. A lot of us look at the news and watch the news from a variety of different vantage points, one of them being a political vantage point, one of them being our, my community's vantage point. What does it mean for us to look at the news with a kingdom perspective? When you watch the news, are you actively engaged in the news in prayer for all the things that flash over the screen or show up on your computer screen? Pray. Pray that hope is kindled around the world through Jesus Christ. This is one of the things that we can do when we think about anticipating the hope of Jesus. Zechariah, in his praise, also references the holy prophets who had prophesied about this long ago. One of those prophecies is particularly poignant and found in Isaiah chapter 9. There, Isaiah the prophet writes, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and holding it, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal, the passion, the love of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The prophet Isaiah, 400 years or so, a little bit 500 years before, had the same situation, a similar situation as that of Zechariah. His people were being conquered and threatened to be conquered. His people had turned aside from the laws of God and the way of God. They had lived through bad king after bad king in Israel. People who just would not follow God. Isaiah prophesying hope. Prophesying that there would be a good king. A king who upholds the way. The tone in Isaiah's prophecy is political, but political in a good way. And this is what I mean. Look at the words here in the text. He mentions government. Mentions thrones, kingdoms and justice. These have to do with how a people function here on earth, how things are governed. Isaiah is looking forward to a day when things are governed justly and rightly for all people, where the poor are taken care of. You know, if you've read the, read the minor prophets that we call them in the Old Testament, one of those repeated refrains that God accuses the people of Israel of doing is not caring for the poor and the orphan. It just repeats itself over and over again. Isaiah is looking forward to a day when things would be different and prophesies that a Savior would come. And as we anticipate Advent, the hope comes in the form of Jesus, who is growing in Zechariah's cousin womb. Hope was coming to live among them. God incarnate, Emmanuel. Imagine the excitement that was in that space, in their homes, as they realized what these pregnancies meant. They were hope and life, not just for those families themselves, but for the world, 
Zechariah begins then to talk about his own child and thinking about his child who they had named John. This, this hymn comes, and this, this praise comes um, at the time of, uh, of John's dedication, um, his circumcision, about eight days after birth. So John is already there. He's been named. And Zechariah continues on in his praise as if speaking to his own child and says, you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the paths of peace. Zechariah knew that his son was not the Savior, but he was still excited because he knew that his child would be one of those people that would point the way to the ultimate hope. And friends, you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus, that is what we are to be. Like John the Baptist, like this child who was just born months ahead of Jesus' birth, to point the way to hope, to remind ourselves, to remind one another, to remind our neighbors, our family, our co-workers that yes, the world is messed up, but there is hope. Yes, there is pain and hurt, but God has come to walk with us, to journey with us, to go through life with us, and to give us hope. This holiday season, it's a time of active anticipation. We don't wait idly for something to happen. We are called to a get-out-there-now sort of anticipation, a sort of active faith. If you are a Christian... Remember, first of all, the hope that you have in Christ that is good news for all. Hope for the nations. Hope for your friends and family. But let us then recommit ourselves to finding opportunities to share that hope with others. It does not have to be in an aggressive, oppressive way. A lot of times we think about sharing our faith with others as a way of Bible bashing people on the head with Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is we can share our own experience of finding hope in Christ through our own difficulties and how we engage with things that are going on in the world and in our community. We can talk to people who were involved and survivors of the borderline shooting. We could talk to people who had suffered through the loss of their homes not that far from here. And we can say, I don't know what you are going through right now but I've experienced some difficult things and here's how I got through it. Here's what God meant to me in those spaces. That's what it is to share hope. Let us recommit ourselves to share the hope of others. Invite others to find hope in Jesus. And if you, on the other hand, you find yourself in a place in life where you realize you've never really turned your heart towards that hope, Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you toy with the idea of, do I really believe this or not? And you've never really said, I want to 
put my life here. I need to find hope, and I'm going to find it in God because God is offering it to you. If you are in that space, I want to invite you to take that leap of faith, to take that step and say, yes, I want to find my hope in Jesus. I want to follow this God whose message and whose person breaks through the mess of this world to provide a promise that God will make things right in the end. If you want to take that step, you don't need to do anything dramatic. Um, if you want, there's a space on the card that you can check off that says, you know, I've never really done this for the first time, but I would really like to do that. You can go ahead and check that off there. Um, I will follow up with you at another time. Or you can come up to me after the service and say, I want to talk about this. This is something I want to do. I would love to have the chance to speak with you about taking steps in your faith journey. So if you're in that place, know that you are invited on this journey of finding hope in Jesus. And then for all of us, the message this morning is a simple one. We live in a messy world, right? And just as God did for us 2,000 years ago today, our, his presence is with us and gives us a sense of hope. That there is a better life, not just on the other side of heaven, but there is hope even now in our messed up world because this is not the way things were supposed to be. It was for the sake of this messed up world that Jesus came. It is for the sake of this messed up world that God decided now is the time to bring hope. This is the first Sunday of Advent and we remember that Christ came to give us hope. It is also our first Sunday of the month, which means that for us as a church community is our tradition to participate in communion. Communion is a practice that affirms that hope. Because our hope in Jesus is not just that he broke into this world and was born, but that he also lived, taught, showed us the right way to live, died, was buried and rose again to provide us the promise of life. That is where our hope lies. So today, as we participate in this ritual of communion, we are declaring our hope in Jesus. That Jesus died, he shed his blood, but that was not the end of the story. Because yes, Christmas is coming, Good Friday, the death of Jesus came, but Easter is still on its way. That is our hope, and that is what we celebrate today here at the communion table. Today, we are going to be passing the elements, which means the servers are going to come, and they're going to be passing trays along. First, they're going to pass um, the matzah cracker, and then they're going to pass the cup. And we ask you that for today, hold on to both elements and you continue to pass them, and we're going to participate in that together, in part because this is a communal experience. This is not just individuals here, if you follow Jesus, saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. This is us doing it together as a faith community, saying, 
this is what you have done for us. Matt and Melody. The Apostle Paul tells us that on the night on which he, Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Paul reminds us that Jesus took the cup, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It will be shed for you and for all, so that your sins may be forgiven. Take and drink in remembrance of me. This is the Lord's table. Anyone who professes Jesus is welcome to eat, to be in communion with us. This is an open table for all who believe. Take and eat. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, our Savior, as we celebrate this first Sunday in Advent, we give you all the honor and the praise for giving of yourself by shedding your blood and letting your body be broken in death for our sake so that we might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Through this bread and this cup, unite us with one another, those on earth and in heaven. May we be a living offering to you so that in word and deed we may continually praise and glorify your holy name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. The communion service, please come forward. <clears throat> 